Alrighty, shalom and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Brutal Planet, right here on Yeshiva Radio. My name is Christopher Fredrickson. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with each and every single one of you here today. Now make sure to go and subscribe to us on iTunes. Also make sure to subscribe to us on Vimeo, YouTube, and make sure to go and check out the website, lapidjudaism.com, as well as our Semitic language learning website, hebrewandaramaic.com, where you can go and learn the languages which we are going to be talking about here today in the realms of the chapter of the Bible that we are going to be discussing today, which is Matthew chapter 23. Now, let me go and set this up for you, first of all. The reason why I decided to go and talk about this particular chapter of the Bible is because of the fact that there is so much arguments that are uh, propagated and so many different differing opinions in terms of Matthew chapter 23 and very key verses within this particular chapter of the Bible. So one of the things that we decided to do here today is to go and look through it in a linguistic way as well as through that of the realm of historical lenses within that of first century Israeli society. Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing here today. And let me go and set up the texts in which it is that we are going to be using as we go through this chapter of the New Testament. Now, first of all, me personally, I am an Aramaic primist, okay? So I'm going to be relying a great deal of the time upon that of the Kaboris Codex, okay? There are other ancient codexes as well, such as the Yonan Codex as well, that came about around the same time as the Kaboris. And there's a couple of others, not very many, but there are a few. Now, the thing about it, though, is that I also realize at the same time, we got to be good scholars as well, because the scholarship in terms of Aramaic primacy and Greek primacy is basically split straight down the middle, in terms of the scholarly realms, you know, whenever it is that I go and present at ETS and SBL and those things every couple of years, whenever it is I go to those, we have people on both sides of the aisle, okay? And so, therefore, we have to go and look at the Greek. One of the issues with this, however, for me personally, is that I do not speak Greek, Okay, and I cannot read Greek, cannot interpret Greek. So, basically, here's how I'm going to be going about and approaching that. Okay, there are two Bibles that I have over here. This one, I'm going to be looking at the Aramaic side of the page that has the Kaboris Codex. This is the second edition of the Aramaic English New Testament that has the Estrangela Aramaic. The later editions have the Aramaic within that of Ashori Aramaic, which is the same as the Hebrew Defu script in which it is that we are accustomed to, okay? And so this is what I'm going to be relying on in terms of the Aramaic and looking at the Aramaic side of the page as opposed to necessarily the English. Now, in terms of taking care of this whole Greek concept, there was a guy that was named Franz Dalage in the 1800s. And Franz Dalage, what he ended up doing was going and um, translating the oldest Greek texts where we get a majority of our Bibles from, 
and he goes and translates them into Hebrew. And I have an interlinear for that as well. I also have just the Hebrew right over here without any English. Within uh, this one over here, if you can read Hebrew, you see that it says Haberit Ha okay, which is the New Testament, okay? And so this one's just the Gospels, and this is the one that I'm going to be relying on because the text is a little bit bigger, <laughs> you know? So I'm going to be using this to better understand the Greek. Now, the thing about it, though, is that considering that I don't know Greek and I don't know Latin, I know that we have people all over the, the scholar, scholarly spectrum that watch this program and give us great feedback each and every single week. Now, if you are indeed a person who knows Greek and you find that, you know, Dalich has something wrong in which it is that it is that we are quoting in terms of his text, one of the things that I want you to do is to make sure to let me know. And then within part two of this series on Matthew 23, we're going to be going slowly through this. This is going to be a couple of parts into this series. One of the things I want you to do is to go and send me the correction. And one of the things that we will end up doing is if there is any correction, we will go and take it and talk about it at the beginning of next week's um, edition of going through this chapter of the New Testament, okay? So these are the two texts that we are going to be using. These are the two texts that it is that I'm going to be relying on. And also, I'd love to hear from you guys in terms of other textual criticism or anything else of that matter as well. Um, make sure to go and um, if you have any, you can easily email me by going to lapidjudaism.com or you can leave a comment, you know, on any of our social media platforms or the Vimeo or the YouTube or that of our podcast page on lapidjudaism.com in the podcast section under Brutal Planet. Okay, so these are the these are the texts that it is that we are going to be relying upon. Now, the thing that you have to understand about the different languages at the same time is that when I go and I do the Aramaic, uh, with the Aramaic, the Aramaic in many ways sounds like baby talk. <laughs> it really sounds goofy to the untrained ear, and it is vastly hard to pronounce whenever it is that you have certain letters that are together and so on and so forth, and my dialect for Aramaic is not tip-top yet. That's why I don't have my Moray certification yet in Aramaic. I do have it in Hebrew, but not in Aramaic. So I'm still working on this with my Aramaic, but luckily I am able to, you know, go and be able to say, okay, well, this is how this would be translated and so on and so forth, you know, and to go and look at those particular things. So, you know, the thing about it though is that with that, we have, you know, there's certain things that when you're transliterating Aramaic and, you know, trying to enunciate it out, Certain things are going to be a little goofy. You know, for instance, a lot of the times if you go and you look at the Ashuri script, we have four different scripts in Aramaic. We have Ashuri, we have Estrangelo, we have Swadeya, and we have Serta script. Okay, and now if you're looking at the Ashuri, which is the same script as Hebrew Defus, that's actually where the uh, Hebrew Defus script came from, uh, you're going to have um, a lot of things are going to be exactly the same. The Nakud is going to be the same and all that stuff, but you're going to also have some slight differences as well. You take, for instance, the letter Vav. The letter Vav in Hebrew has, there. it does not make a W sound. It can make a, an, a V sound, it can make a um, O sound, and it can make a U sound. And those are based upon Nakud. Now, one of the things that you'll see within a Shuri script, if you have one of the newer editions of the AENT, by the way, 
um, you will see that it is very rare that the Vav will have any Nakud with it. You will not have a Kalam, you will not have a Kibbutz, or any of those things. And so the thing with it is that it will always be translated as a W sound, okay, in terms of um, Eastern Aramaic dialect. Now, Eastern Aramaic dialect is the same one that Yeshua spoke. Now, the Western will make a V sound, but within that of the Eastern, it makes a W sound. So we're trying to get this as close to the dialect of Yeshua as possible. And that's actually the dialect that is taught within that of the Hebrew and Aramaic learning as uh, the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute as well. And so, you know, that's the route that it is that our teacher takes in terms of the Aramaic languages so that you can recite these things in the same way that it is that Yeshua himself did. But see, the thing about it, though, is that the rules are much different in terms of Hebrew. You know, if it doesn't have any nakud, then it'll make a V sound. If it has a little dot above it, which is called a cholam, then it'll cause the vav to make an O sound. And then if you have a dot beside of it, then it will make a U sound, okay? And then there's also certain things that we have within that of Hebrew to where it is that if you have, say, for instance, you have any letter. Take, for instance, it is an ion, okay? You have an ion somewhere, and then you have a dot over to the side of the ion near the top, then it's going to operate as a phantom vav, that there would be a vav within that of the Torah scroll, but not within that of your printed text. Instead, there is a shorthand that would be that of a little cholam leading you to know that, first of all, that the vav that would be there, that would be the phantom vav, would have a cholam with it, so therefore you're making a no sound right after the sound of the letter that precedes it, you know, so in, it, it, this makes a whole lot more sense if you go and join the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute because we got slides and all that stuff that, you know, go and point those things out. But let us go ahead and get started into our text. And we're going to read first from that of the Aramaic, okay? So let me go ahead and turn there to uh, Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 1. Now, we're going to read the first two verses here, okay? And it says in there, Hadien Yeshua Malel Am Kineshe Wa Am Tamadihua We Amar Lahuan Al Kurisa De Moshe Yevetsu Safri Wafra Yashi, okay? And that's what it is that we have within that of the Aramaic. Now, within that of the English side of the page, it says, Yeshua then spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, and he said to them, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moses, okay? And so that's what it is that we have in the Aramaic. Now, let's go and take this and go to that of um, the Dalage Hebrew here, so that it is that we can get a better understanding of how it is that the Greek ends up rendering this, okay? So we're going to be reading the same two verses here within that of the Hebrew. And so what it says within there is, Az yedaber Yeshua el hamach vi el av lemor ha-shofrim V ha porishim 
Yoshevim al kise Moshe. Okay? And so within the English side of the page, within that of the Daily Hebrew Gospels, it says, Then Yeshua spoke to the crowd of the people and to his disciples, saying, The scholars, we have a different rendering here, the scholars and the Porashim sit on the seat of Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay? So, first of all, we have to understand the concept here in terms of verse 2. What exactly is the uh, uh, um, this this term that is there that is kasi or al kasi Moshe? What is uh, the seat of Moses? Okay. Now, one of the things is that within most of the synagogues, which you would end up having during this time, is a seat which is actually kase is better translated as throne. Okay, this is a much better tra uh, trans translation to throne, and the word kise within that of the Aramaic, or uh, I'm sorry, in the Hebrew it says kise, and um, you know within within there we uh, in terms of the Aramaic we have uh, yitivav, okay, in terms of that word there, and with they both translate to that of of throne as opposed to a, just simply a seat. Now, this seat represents through that of all of, you know, uh, halakha in terms of the history, in terms of that of things such as the Talmud, the Tosefta, and all these other ancient texts that go and discuss this particular thing. The seat of Moses, the throne of Moses, if you will, represents halakhic authority. Okay, it represents the authority that is besieged upon to that of the rabbi that teaches from the seat that has, you know, transcended down from that of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, see, the thing about those where we have issue here is that for those who don't know, when you come to the Pharisees, the Pharisees were not a unilateral group. It wasn't just one group of individuals. You had five different sects of Pharisees during this time, okay? And so the thing about it, though, is we have to become familiarized with these sects. Now, the two biggest sects of, of the Pharisees at this time were that of the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The difference between the two was that, that in terms of Shammai, there was a much stricter order that was given to that of the Torah, okay? And it would be equivalent to that of what we have today known as that of the One Torah Movement. The One Torah Movement believes that every single person is bound to the same mitzvahs as everybody else. They basically get rid of the entire idea of the gerim, that we find all throughout that of the book of Exodus, that we find all throughout that of the letters of Paul, which deals with a person going through steps in terms of their observance so that they can fulfill mitzvahs, what is called lishma Hashem, for the sake of Hashem, as opposed to just making the Torah some little checkoff list saying, I do this because I'm supposed to. I, I don't understand the spiritual significance of this, but I do this. You know, that's you know, something that has to be avoided so that it is that mitzvahs, first of all, they have a purpose. They have a reason for that connection with that of Hashem. For we know from the words of Hazel that the goal of the Torah 
is two different things, Shalom and Mashiach, okay? Those are the goals of the Torah. And so with this, we have to realize that each person's at a different point within that of their observance. A person who is, say, for instance, a Ger Toshav. What is a Ger Toshav? A Ger Toshav comes into the land of Israel, and they are, the, gates of Is, uh, the gates of Israel are opened up, or of Jerusalem are opened up, once every 50 years. And what happens is a person can come in there, and they are bound to certain mitzvahs. They're not bound to the entire Torah, first of all. They're not bound to necessarily you know, the vast amounts of halakhic order. They're not necessarily bound to that. Uh, but the Ger Toshav, they come in and they reside among the Jewish people for a year. After that year's up, they can choose to stay and become a convert. Then they become a Ger Toshav, or, an, or, 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 or a Ger Sedek, rather. After becoming a Ger Toshav, they become a Ger Sedek. They start to incorporate more mitzvahs and more halakhic order and so on and so forth. Until it is that they take that final step in becoming Yehudi. And so Shammai, you know, basically said, you know, we're not going to do any of those things. Hallel, on the other hand, says, first of all, you know, not everybody is bound to the same order, it, much in the same way that you don't expect a first grader to have to do advanced algebra. He can't do advanced algebra, no matter how good at math he is at for, in first grade, unless he's, you know, Walter O'Brien intelligence, you know, has a, you know, 190-something IQ. There's no way in the world that he's going to be able to do advanced algebra. He has to work his way up to that. And that's the approach that Hillel himself took, was to approach that way. And so, therefore, whenever it is that Yeshua goes and says that, uh, you know, the scholars in the Porashim who sit on the seat of Moshe Rabbeinu, we have to ask ourselves, which one? Well, the thing that we can end up seeing is from passages such as Mark chapter 7. We have the school of Shammai sitting over there taking great issue with the disciples of Yeshua because they weren't going and do, well, doing the prayers and washing, washing their hands upon eating. Okay, And this is something that is found in both the schools of Hillel and of that of Shammai. Now, the issue is that Shammai took this as a, uh, as a fundamental mitzvah, that this was the mitzvah of that of Torah Tav, which it was not. It was a mitzvah of Torah Shebel Peh. And so, therefore, you know, uh, it said that some of the Talmudim didn't go and do this. Why? Because some of them were very new to this walk. And so they took great issue because of the fact that they saw that as a primary mitzvah, okay? And so what happens is Yeshua then goes and quotes to them what is written in Shulchan Ruch. He goes and states that first of all, uh, you know, and that's one of the footnotes in the rabbinic gospel of Mark, a very long footnote from that of Shulchan Aruch about this entire mitzvah. And many people say that Yeshua was speaking against the oral Torah, but no, as a matter of fact, he was actually quoting from the halakha that was later put, put down and written within that of Shulchan Aruch. And so the thing about it, though, is that we see that through that instance and several others, such as the Shabbos wasn't made for man, but man for the Shabbos. Or, 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 the, or the Shabbos wasn't, uh, the, the, the man wasn't made for the Shabbos, but Shabbos for the, for, 
for for men, we end up seeing that being written within that of the Talmud and the Malkita in terms of being a part of the Halakha of Hillel. Okay, and so understanding these and realizing that when Yeshua goes and quotes Tarashi Bialpeh, all throughout that of the Brit Shah and in the Besorot and that of the Gospels, 90% of the time he's quoting Hillel and the Halakha of Hillel a great deal of the time. And this is proven within the Rabbinic Gospel of Mark, 320 footnotes on this thing. Go pick yourself up a copy of that, as a matter of fact. I was one of the compilers of that, as a matter of fact. So, you know, go if you want to research that a little bit more, go and take a look at that. And so the thing about though is that during this time, one of the things that we end up seeing that has been an unbroken lineage in terms of understanding this is that during the time that we are here on earth, it is said by the sages that the halakha follows that of Hillel. We also see this within that of the letters of Paul. We find this in 2 Luke, or which is also known as the book of Acts, where we see that Paul was a student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the, um, was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel. Okay, so we see this unbroken chain, you know, going on even further through that of the New Testament. This is why it is that the um, within that of the one of the letters to Timothy, it says, you know, study to show yourself approved. You know, we have to know these things. We have to understand, you know, the things that are happening in the world around us here when we are reading these passages. And so with that, we can go and assert through that of the words of Yeshua whose halakha it is that he aligned with, that he is talking about in terms of the particular parashim there, that he is talking about those who, um, uh, who are the followers of Hillel. Okay? So this is who it is that he is talking about. But then we have this other question here that, you know, that many people just kind of glance over. Where it's, in the Dalage here, it says the scholars, okay? But in the Hebrew, it actually has, um, uh, uh, let's see here. Within the Hebrew, it actually has hashofrim, okay? Hashofrim is a, it, it actually can mean scholars, but we have to understand the context of, the, of, 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 of this particularly. And, uh, and within that of the Aramaic, it has sefri. Okay, now in the Aramaic, in the ANT, how does it translate that there? It says, the scribes, okay? So the thing that we have to ask here is, who are these individuals? Who are the Shofrim or the Sefe? Well, they are Torah teachers without Shemitah. What is Shemitah? Shemitah is ordination. They couldn't bring Cheroshim. They cannot introduce new interpretations or new halakhic orders or pasach halakha, which is better called, which is, you know, being able to make legal judgments. But they were obligated to enforce and teach existing halakha. That is what the scribes, or as the Dalage renders here, the scholars from Hasofrim, um, this is what it is that they are. Now, in terms of the, uh, of the Aramaic, in terms of the word safri there, it can also be rendered as lawyers as well. We have another meaning there. So, 
in terms of this, the these individuals, the Sofrim or the Sifred, what they essentially were, were individuals who, first of all, didn't have Shemitah, okay, they, or, or Shminka, rather. They didn't have Shminka. They didn't have an ordination. But they were allowed to go and teach the Torah, even though they also didn't have a Moray license, okay? Um, this would be like a person who... Uh, many of us are familiar with Torah teachers who haven't gone and gotten Shemitah, or, or, or Shminka, rather. They haven't gotten ordination. They haven't gone to school in a yeshiva. But however, they may have grown up within that of a Jewish community. They have lived, you know, the Torah throughout their entire life, and they are very involved within that of the synagogue. They are very involved in the ways of the synagogue, and they're very involved in terms of halakha. They do an immense amount of study through that of coming to Bible studies and all that stuff that are done within that of the synagogue. They engage in um, in um, um, havdalah and all of those things. Havdalah is basically like a religious debate that is done after the Shabbos, after sundown. They go and they engage in these things, and they are very knowledgeable about these things, but they haven't gone through any sort of, um, you know, uh, they haven't gotten a moray license, and they haven't received shminka. They haven't received an ordination in either way. Now, the difference between a moray and a rabbi are basically, they're, they're very similar, very similar. Now, in terms of a moray, a moray is allowed to teach. Okay, he is allowed to get up in front of the bima and to go and to teach the Torah and to also do the things that it is that the shofarim do, that the scribes or the scholars, what it is that they do. This is what it is that they are allowed. And they, they, are, they are allowed to go and to, to, to do this thing, but however, they don't have a community underneath of them, Okay. Whenever it is that you may have a question, you can go and bring it to that of the moray. But in terms of dealing with spiritual things within that of your life, dealing with things such as marriage and so on and so forth, the rabbi has a much larger obligation to his people because of the fact that, you know, he is basically uh, one of the things that, that, that we learn about from that of the Torah is that the sins of the people of the children of Israel had fallen upon that of Moshe Rabbeinu. We end up seeing this in the book of Davarim. He says, I am not able to enter into the land of Israel because of your sin. That's why it is that we refer to him as Moshe Rabbeinu, as well as that of being under the halacha of Yeshua. We also go and see this very premise you know, coming about by that of his death upon that of the cross, okay? So we, we see that, first of all, we see that Yeshua, the, that Yeshua is saying to go and to do the halakha of that of the Pharisees and to listen to that of those within that of the synagogues, knowing that as being the sofrim. Now, the thing about those, I talked about the differences between that of Shammai and Hallel. The thing I didn't talk about, however, that I just kind of, you know, went went past and forgot to mention, is probably the most important. What is the most important thing? The most important thing is that, first of all, unlike the Sadducees, which we can see 
what the scripture says in terms of the Sadducees. If we go to Acts chapter 23, verse 8, reading from that of the Orthodox Jewish Bible, it says, um, Loit, according to the Sodakim, or the, or I'm sorry, not, not the Zodakim, but the Zedakim, which is the Sadducees, because they were the followers of Sodok. Okay? It, it, it's not translated to Zedek, a person who's righteous, it's the followers of Zodok. Okay? So they could be referred to as Zedekim or Zodakim. Okay? Uh, there is no Techias Hamaasim, resurrection of the dead, nor Malach, angel, nor Rochot, uh, uh, spirits, but Porashim, acknowledge all of these things. Okay? We also have Yeshua going and speaking to that of the Pharisees as well, or the Sadducees as well. And we see in Mark chapter 12, verse 18, and the Zerchim, the Sadducees, came to Rabbi Melech HaMashiach, and the ones who say that there is no Techias HaMa'asim, resurrection of the dead, and they were questioning him, saying. So the thing about it, though, is that we see that, first of all, that the Sadducees, according to that of Luke's account of Paul here, that they didn't believe in resurrection of the dead, techias ha-ma'asim. They didn't believe in angels, malachim. They didn't believe in rachot. They didn't believe in spirits. There's other things that it is that they didn't believe in as well. They didn't believe in the concept of Mashiach. And to many of us, that seems rather foreign. Why isn't that the Sadducees didn't believe in these things? Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in these things because of the fact that these very things come not from Tardashevik Tav. They actually come from Tardashevik They come not from the written Torah, they come from that of the oral Torah. In fact, within that of two parts of the Mishnah, we have it in, uh, in, I believe, Sanhedrin and also another part. It says that, you know, it gives a list of individuals who will not see the Olam Haba. It says all of Israelites have a share in the Olam Haba, in the, to the world to come. But they say that, and, uh, that those who do not believe in Tekeyaz HaMa'asim, resurrection of the dead, will have no share in that of the world to come. And also they give other things as well, such as, you know, person who goes and tries to enunciate and say the four-letter name, you know, because that deals with the ego, you know, that deals with a person trying to elevate themselves past that of Hashem, trying to elevate themselves past that of God. Such a person, when they come to a point of humility, if they continue to do that, then, you know, then basically they have no share in the Elom Haba. Now, these are concepts as well that we, you know, you take, for instance, that one about the divine name. In no manuscript of the, the 3,000 we have in Aramaic and the later 500 manuscripts that we have of that of the Hebrew, nor within that of the Greek manuscripts or Latin manuscripts, do we find the four-letter name in any of them. We don't find it anywhere. So we see that even the authors of the New Testament went and followed the halakha in terms of their writing, as a matter of fact, 
after the death of Shimon HaZadok, when the four-letter names ceased to be uttered. So we see that even the writers followed Halakha in terms of this. And so the thing, the, the thing with this is that the thing that causes both the, the school of Shammai and the school of Hallel to be basically one is that they both ended up following Halakha because they followed what it says in the Torah portion, Shoftim. And actually, the word Hashofrim is where we get the word Shoftim, okay? Because the Shoftim were the judges that sat on the Sanhedrin that gave about judgments and halakhic rulings, okay? So we see the tie there in, within that of the language of Hashofrim and of that of Shoftim, we have two Torah portions about this particular thing, six entire chapters. And it brings clearer to light why it is that in various points within that of the Torah, we have the word Tarot or Toretai or Toretif, which is a plural form of Torah relating to that of both the written and that of the oral Torah. And so the thing is that we see that the Sadducees, they did not follow the oral Torah. They were individuals who would, uh, in today's time, be a part of the, of the Kairites. This is why it is that you see many people such as Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri, who was a famed Kabbalist who came to that of Yeshua. We have people like Rabbi Isaac Lichtenstein, as well as that of Fyvel Levertov. These were highly rabbinic individuals who came to belief in Yeshua. It was through rabbinics as well that I stopped becoming a um a, an anti-missionary myself and you know accepted yeshua once again as my mashiach because of rabbinics so the thing about it though is that however the sadducees saw things as hyper literalist you know take for instance last week we had the reading of that of the 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 ladder of jacob and all that stuff when they come upon that passage within the, the Torah, they say, oh, it was just a dream. It has no significance whatsoever. There's, there's nothing spiritual about any of these things. There's no hidden layers within that of the Torah. There's no things dealing with root words and gematria and all of these things when it comes to that of the Sadducees, of the Zorachim. And so, the thing about it, though, is the thing that separated the, the Pharisees was that they accepted and upheld the oral law. And this is the thing that Yeshua's saying in verse 2. And if we wrap it up with verse 2 and 3, it says, And the scholars in the Porishim sit on the seat of Moshe Rabbeinu, so whatever they tell you to do, observe and do it only. Be careful not to do as their deeds, for they say things, but they do not do them. Many people go and take verse 3, and they take this from a vantage point of Yeshua speaking against the oral Torah. But however, the individuals who say such a thing, they have no concept of the concept of hypocrisy. What is a hypocrite? Hypocrite is that's somebody that says to do something, and they don't do it. And then, as we continue on next week, the thing that we will end up seeing is that, first of all, many mitzvahs are fulfilled by these individuals. But 
They do things such as lengthening their zitziot. They do things by propping themselves up to be above that of the individuals. And when we get all the way down to verse 8 next week, when we get to that verse next week, this is one of the ones that causes a lot of debate. Okay? We are going to take this into the context of, first of all, history as well as linguistics. So the thing about it, though, is that one of the things that we realize from analyzing a great deal of verse 2 and then the statement that is given in verse 3, we see that Yeshua is not in any way speaking against halacha. He's not speaking against the ways of the shofarim and the parashim. He's not doing any such thing. But he's saying to not be a hypocrite. Don't be a person who says, you know, uh, you know, go and eat kosher. Go and make sure that all your stuff is shakrit. And then you go and you find out that they're eating a double bacon cheeseburger over there at um, over there at uh, over there at McDonald's. <laughs> you know, this is you know that's essentially what it is that he's talking about here. That's why he mentions both the shofarim. And that of the Porishim. He mentions them both. He's doubling down on this. And considering that the book of Matthew is written on the drosh level of interpretation, which is, you know, the third level of biblical hermeneutic in terms of Jewish hermeneutic, we find out that there are several rules that have to be applied there. Language is one of the big ones. You have to know the languages. But second of all, you also have to know the culture. You have to know the things of the Torah, because they are a part of the culture, because it's written on the Midrashim or the, or the sermon level. And we see that Yeshua is engaging in Midrashim greatly within that of this chapter. And so this is you know, how it is that we are going to be starting out and going through this chapter within that of the book of Matthew. So make sure to join us again next week as we go through another huge chunk, much bigger chunk than it is that we went through today in terms of the um, 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew. All right? Make sure to go and check out lapidjudaism.com. Make sure to go and subscribe to us on iTunes. Make sure to also, if you want to learn these languages, and all that stuff. So you can actually do studies like this yourself. Go on over to HebrewAndAramaic.com. Go and sign up to become a student of the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. All right? Shalom, bracha. Peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewAndAramaic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time, and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step -step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.